Again, that's Luke 2, verses 1 through 21, page 1018 in the Black Pew Bible. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring the good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. What a familiar story this is. We've sung Christmas carols about it. We've done plays. We've done cantatas. Read Christmas stories based off this passage right here. And yet, maybe we don't completely understand it in its entirety. Maybe we fumbled it a little bit in our culture. Maybe we've heard it so many times that we've become tainted to the meaning of the Scripture and the great truths that are within its grasp. And this morning, I want to be able to dive into God's Word and want to be able to exposit it and see what insights we have, what promises, what magnificent truths that we can learn about God through our text. And I've titled this sermon, Hope Arrives. Hope Arrives. And Shane did say that I have one of the best texts, and I agree. This is one of the best texts to be able to preach this morning. Christmas, preceding Christmas. The birth of God in human form, I would say, is the most important moment in all of history. It's the apex. It's the high point. It's so monumental that all of history is based off this one event. It's exemplified by how we label our calendars. B.C., you've heard it. It's before Christ. We also have A.D., Anno Domini, meaning the year of our Lord. That's how important this scripture is, or this time in human history, actually. Luke is writing the letter, the title of the, the epistle here, or the gospel. He, it's an orderly account to the most excellent Theophilus. And Luke, he doesn't really embellish anything here. He doesn't clutter with, with 
much other than just straight to the point of the text. It's really a simple text. He shoots us straight. It's really easy to understand. It's a, it's a narrative text, but, but it's anything other than simple. It's profound and far-reaching. Understand that Israel knew some things about the Messiah. Israel, they were waiting on the Messiah. It had been prophesied long ago that the Messiah was coming. They had false notions about who the Messiah was, but yet they knew something was coming. The covenant, it was cut with David. We've seen that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God cuts this covenant with David and He promised the Messiah through the line of David. So Israel knew something about the Messiah. That He would reign upon the throne of Jerusalem and He would establish the glorious kingdom of Israel. They knew that, as Psalm 2 says, He would rule with a rod of iron. In fact, Micah 5.2 says this, the Messiah would be born in the village of Bethlehem. You see, the Jews all knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. At least that's what God's Word says, does it not? Well, Luke, he doesn't quote Micah here, but he does show us that how God orchestrates the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem in explicit fulfillment of the prophecy that was given. Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. That's what God's Word says. So that's, we see how all this came about and how God works and He makes it happen precisely as He said it would. Joseph and Mary, they were only in Bethlehem for a short period of time. And it had to be exactly the right days when the child was, one, was born. One small blunder, one giddy up in the, the donkey, if you will, and the prophecy, it doesn't come true. It doesn't come to fulfillment. But we know that God is behind this, and, and our God, He doesn't make mistakes like that. Now, as we come to the verses today, we start off with Luke giving us, I want you to understand, He's going to give us the setting of the world. He's going to give us the setting of the nation, and then He's going to give us the setting of the people in that nation. And so the first point I want you to look at today is, is the providential work of Almighty God. The providential work of Almighty God. Look with me, if you will, at the setting piece of this text. In verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census would be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. So what we see is, is Luke setting the setting of the world at this time. Caesar Augustus, he, is the, he has the throne. Octavian was his given name. Caesar is his royal name. It's like as if someone gives you the name Pharaoh or emperor or king. And so that's his, that's his royal name. And he was known at the time as the savior of the world. He ruled. He was a great ruler at that time from a human standpoint. And he was literally worshipped as a god and a deity. Albeit the false savior of the world... But nonetheless, he was the, known as the Savior of the world to the people. The one who knew nothing of the Bible, knew nothing of the Savior of the world. But in the normal course of his rule, he had determined that a census, for tax reasons, would be taken in the Roman Empire. The time period, 8 B.C., the whole Roman Empire would be referred to as the whole of the inhabited earth, the whole known earth as, as Romans, the Roman, Rome would have been called. The census, it was taken at a time when a man named Cyrenius was governor over Syria. It was the first of two periods in which he ruled and reigned over that, that, that area. He was a, the ruler at the second census. And you can go back to history and you can, these things are, are true. Luke's, Luke's not writing a lie here. 
And uh, the censuses, they were taken every 14 years. We can go back and we can establish those by, by historians. Now, we don't know anything other than uh, when Jesus was born was about 6 to 4 B.C. That's kind of how we, can, we, we uh, can go back to when the censuses were taken, how these events played out. Jesus born between 6 and 4 B.C. Um, it was not originally 0 A.D., but the, the readers of Luke would have known this more specifically at the time. They would have known when this would have happened. 6 B.C. at the earliest, 4 B.C. at the latest that Christ was born. Literally, literally in the town of Bethlehem. Now it's crucial to understand that it was crucial for Joseph and Mary to go to their own city. Why? Because Bethlehem was their city. Caesar didn't know he was being moved by the Spirit of God to accomplish his work, but he was. And this is how the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And it was at the right time in the history of the world, the exact religious, the exact cultural, the exact conditions, religious conditions that were in place. It was at the right time for the Messiah to come. You see, God moves upon the mind of this pagan person. This pagan king, godless Caesar, who knew nothing about the Old Testament, nothing about the coming of the Messiah, nothing about God whatsoever. But God used this pagan man to make a decree in order to send Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, to the town in which Jesus was prophesied to be born in, and it was at the exact right time when God had prophesied it. You know, it's amazing how God, He orchestrates not some things, but He providentially orchestrates everything. Whether he has a willing or an unwilling subject, well, a knowing or unknowing subject, God works upon those subjects, especially kings, especially presidents, especially pharaohs. He works upon those things. It's not just by chance that he's ruling and reigning at this time. God, he brings these pieces together in minute detail and we see how he accomplishes the birth of the Messiah just as he's prophesied. And this is the God's sovereignty at work. Verse 3, everybody had to register for the census, and it says, everyone to his own city. Now, this was most likely not a Roman stipulation. It was, it was most likely a Jewish one. The Jewish people, they were very picky about their genealogical records. And so we, we see a glimpse of this when the children of Israel came to the land of Canaan, and the whole land was divided into sections and tribes and that they were given. They were very picky about how these things went about. And so it seems that by Jewish demand, they were to go back to the place of their original ancestry. So Joseph, you see, he was of the family of David. And that's interesting, is it not? Where well, I read the scripture there showing who comes from the line of David. And he would have to enroll in the place of, of his birth and where his ancestors had to be settled by Joshua when he had divided the land. We've seen that in Joshua. This, this just happened to be Bethlehem. This was also very critical to the purposes of God. So that what? Why? The Messiah would be born in the right place that God had determined. You see how God works these things out? This is how He does. This is how God operates. Had Caesar Augustus made his decree earlier or later, had Herod resisted shorter or longer, the child would have been born in Nazareth and not have fulfilled the prophecy. And we can conclude that God doesn't control any circumstances. But... We know that's not right. We know that's not the God that we serve. 
So in verses 4 and 5, move, move with me here. Luke moved from the worldly setting to the national setting. Okay, understand this. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David. Verse 5, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, what we've done is, is Luke has drilled down from the context of, of the world. Now he's drilled down into the context of Israel. He's teaching about Israel. He's getting into the, the regional setting here as a good author does, and he's talking about Galilee, Nazareth, Judea, the city of David, which is Bethlehem. The nation of Israel is so connected to Scripture. It, God, he, he gave the Jews the Scripture. The Jews possessed the law. They had the sign that were given that were God's people. They were charged with taking the message to the world. Ultimately, they failed that. They were God's chosen people and still are. And the, the Scripture was very, very specific about when the Messiah was to be born. And we mentioned this in Scripture earlier, Micah 5.2. Micah the prophet, he says this, this is 700 years before the Messiah was born. And he says, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. You Israel are going to give birth to a ruler. Micah the prophet of divine wrath gives a prophecy of divine promise. Now, we've been in the book of Samuel for the past year or so, and, and we've, we've read about the city of David, have we not? In the Old Testament, the city of David refers to the hill of Zion in Jerusalem where David sat as king. The, the city of Jerusalem, it was the larger city. The city of David was the place where David reigned and ruled upon Mount Zion. So when you're reading in the Old Testament about the city of David, it's referring to Mount Zion where David reigned. But, where he tells us the city of David here in the Scripture, he's referring to what's called Bethlehem. That's also the city of David. It's not where the city where he would reign, but yet the city in which David was born. Bethlehem is a pretty obscure place. If, you've, if you look back in history, it's pretty obscure. It's not anymore, but it, it was and outside of Jerusalem. But in 1 Samuel 16, we see a man identified as Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And in 1 Samuel 16, God goes to Samuel and He says, Look, this Saul guy, he's not cutting it. we got to find someone else. I'm going to appoint someone else. We're going to go to someone else. So he chooses a new king. Where does he say? He says, Go to Bethlehem. There's a man there by the name of Jesse. And I'm going to pick one of his sons. And we know how the story goes from there. Who does he choose? He chooses David. God through Micah said the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. He uses Caesar Augustus and Herod to require a census, which forces Joseph, a descendant from the line of David, down to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. You'll also find out that Mary was a descendant of David as well. You can't make this stuff up. can't do it. All this is the perfect plan of God, providentially getting them exactly where they need to be because the Messiah was a son of David and was to be born in the city of David because the prophet and ultimately God had said so. Verse 5, they went to register for the census along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with, with, with child. Really, you think about it, Mary was probably 13 years old. Joseph, maybe 15. Pretty fearful thing for a 13-year-old, don't you say? to travel, to have been given this baby, and to travel this far under certain circumstances. And we don't, we don't know why it was that Mary went down to Bethlehem. The author doesn't tell us that because surely it, wouldn't have, it would have been enough that Joseph would have been gone and that would have been enough. 
But if you think about it for just a second, she had been told that she's going to have this baby. She is a virgin. Think about the, the rumors that have started spread inside of Bethlehem. We can only imagine. We live here in Mumford Covington and all. It don't take long for things to get out really, really quickly. This is a very, very small town. A 13-year-old's got a baby. You don't think rumors started spreading? David, I mean, Joseph was a, he was a good father. He wanted the best for it. Come with me. Don't need to stay here. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, we don't, it doesn't tell us that, but you, you can only think about those things. I mean, this is real people. And yet, think about it. Why would he miss the birth of the Son of God? She's bearing the Son of God. That's, he's not going to go far. I can promise you. Be a good husband not to go very far either when your wife's president. That's a principle you can take from that, by the way, today. Also, why, uh, verse 6 tells us this. While, while they were there, that's Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. So we don't know how many days they were there, but we just know that while in Bethlehem she gave birth. Mary gave birth to the Son of God. Chris talked about, he preached on hope announced. Shane preached last week on hope confirmed. This week, hope has arrived. It's here. It's on earth. The prophecy has been fulfilled. And the hope, this hope, it's not a, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I hope it happens. Maybe. Wishful thinking? No. The Christian hope is when God has promised something that is going to happen and you put your trust in that promise. Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it and it will come to pass. That's the Christian hope. And isn't that what we see here? Isn't this the fulfillment of the promises that we've seen from the very beginning of Scripture? From Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve fell, God says, I'm going to send a serpent crusher to crush the, the head of the snake. And He sent them, and here He is. Hope has arrived today. That's the promise that Micah talked about, the promise that Isaiah talked about, the promises that Abraham talked about, the promises that God has said was going to arrive. Luke is careful in verse 7 to tell us that she's going to give birth to a firstborn son. Roman Catholic Church would have you to believe none otherwise. But it's very important to understand that he, he is the firstborn, which of course means that she was a virgin, but he is firstborn, which means that he has the right to the inheritance. He is the primogenitor, as it was called. He was called the primary right to the family inheritance. You see, Joseph didn't have a lot to leave his people, his son. He didn't, Mary didn't have a lot either. They weren't very well off. But what they did have was the right to the throne of Israel. They hadn't been a king in a long time in Israel. And the Babylonians, they had just devastated it. The whole thing, they had, they had followed by the Medo-Persians and they were followed by the Greeks and then they by the Romans and somebody was ruling in Israel, but it was never in Israel a king. But the royal line of David was still there. And it was there in the life of Joseph and Mary. And they passed on to Jesus. What they passed on was the right to rule the throne of David. And he was the firstborn. We, may, we see Mary wrap him in cloth, protecting the little baby. You say, is there any significance to that? Not really. She's just being a good mother. She's just loving on her kid, right? The child. She's a mother. 
She loved him. And then it says, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Manger in the Greek means feeding trough. Note the Bible never says Jesus was born in a stable. It's not there. All it says is that he was laid in a manger. And if you study the word inn, all it really means is it's a shelter place. It's, it's, it's a, a, or a place of lodging. It doesn't necessarily denote what we think in our minds is a place where we go and exchange money and they house us and they feed us and they, you know, they clothe us and all. That's, that's not really what it means there. Our Christmas plays have kind of gotten it off, but most likely Jesus was born in a primitive public shelter. Remember when they come into Bethlehem, what are they doing? Census, census is taking, Roman, Roman soldiers are everywhere. There's just really no room. It's not like he says, oh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm pushing you out, Mary, because you know room, you're the son of... No, it's not like that. It's just there was no room. Literally, there was nothing. The details are left out, but wherever we find our, uh, the kind of facility it was, it housed them during this time of period, and they were bedded down with the animals. That's what we, we see there. But, but here's what we get from this. When God came down, He came all the way down. The King of Heaven was not born in a royal palace or a plush hospital, which is probably what the, Roman, or the, the Jews probably thought was going to happen. He was going to rule and reign with an iron rod at this time. That's not what happened. The King of Heaven was not... He, he was born in a smelly, filthy location. And you know what? I feel like he may not have had it any other way. Right from the very beginning of Jesus' life on earth, from the moment of birth, the Son of Man, as Luke tells us, had nowhere to lay his head. He thought his equality with God not something to be held on to, but he gave it up and he humbled himself. He came down to the poor and the lonely and the humble and the debased and the wicked. He came down to the common people to bring his glorious salvation. You see, it's a metaphor for the stench of sin which Jesus bore upon his own body. So we see the world setting, the, the national setting, the fulfillment of Hebrews' prophet statement that he would be born in Bethlehem, all the way down to the circumstances of the birth which speaks of his lowliness. God controls everything, even the great kings of the world. He fulfills the prophecies of Scripture, a sovereign God, God of Scripture, God of the humble sinner, coming all the way down. It is the providential work of the Almighty God. I want to look at next at the pronouncement of the Savior. Look at verses 8 through 14. We're not going to read them, but, but I, I want you to understand this is the pronouncement of the Savior. And, and verse 11, if you underline that in your Bible, if you do, please do that. This is the, the key to the narrative here. It says here, There has been born for you a Savior. And that's the high note of this entire passage. It is the greatest news the world has ever heard. It's good news. In fact, that's what verse 10 says. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Good news. Why? Because the one has been born who will save sinners from their sins and from eternal hell. And so we find in this passage an, an angelic pronouncement to the most unlikely group of people. You know, we live in a time when baby announcements, they, they, they take form really quickly, right? We, we, social media, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. What I'm saying is... is be hard-pressed not to know when someone's being born, right? And especially when mom, dad gets that phone call, hey, we're going to labor, what's mom do? Frantic, hey, let's go, let's get going to the hospital. So-and-so's having a baby and it's announced to the world. The whole world could literally know when someone's having a baby. You can look at the princes over in UK, you know everything about them. A little bit different here, though. The Prince of Peace has no announcement early on. Early on, he doesn't. It, it was obscure. No announcement at all going on in Bethlehem. Just Mary and Joseph knew. 
But what we see here in the text, it wasn't long that this announcement came. And the, the greatest event in the saga of redemption has occurred, and it's about to be announced in an unassuming way. Verse 8 says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. This is the high point of all redemptive history. The greatest moment in the history of the world, the Savior has come to deliver His people from their sins and to bring them out of the judgment of God and to rescue them from eternal hell, bring them out of suffering and the blessings and had been promised in the New Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. And this announcement comes to the most unlikely group of people, Rod, and it is the shepherds. It's the shepherds. This is how you know the Bible's true, by the way, from a supernatural being because humans don't write like this. It would be to something else. It would be totally different. This is, you can trust the Bible. The first announcement of the birth of the Messiah is made to the lowliest commonest of unskilled peasants in the Jewish social strata. That doesn't mean to say that the shepherd was somehow an illegitimate profession. Not at all. Because who was a shepherd? Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. In fact, it may have been that David, a thousand years before this event, was watching sheep in the same region. Maybe the same field in which these shepherds found themselves in. It isn't that they're somehow a shameful profession. It's just a lowly profession. They're out in the middle of the, 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 the pasture and they're with these sheep. And it's just, really, they were looked down upon. They were insignificant in society. But isn't that just like God, though? Isn't that just like Him, that, what He does? to disdain the religious elite, to the spiritual establishment, the hypocrites who thought that they were good enough to achieve relationships with God by their own self-effort. Instead, God chooses to make the greatest announcement in the history of the world to the humblest of the humble, the shepherds. It's not, if that's not a metaphor for God saving the lowly sinner, then what is? What are the shepherds doing? Verse 8, look what they're doing. They're keeping watch over their flock. I think MacArthur, John MacArthur has an interesting commentary on this section of Scripture. Remember, Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, the temple was there. And around the Passover season, you could see as many as a quarter of a million animals slain, but even throughout the year, they went through the sheep rather rapidly. Remember, the priests were butchers. That's what they did. They, they were butchers. A lot of sin. Those sheep had to be kept somewhere. MacArthur says that it's very possible these shepherds very well could have been caring for the sheep that would be offered as sacrifices, which is so interesting that the announcement of the final and full sacrifice, the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world, the Savior of the world, was made to shepherds who were likely who took care of the sheep who were offered as a picture of the coming sacrifice. Kind of interesting. Pretty interesting commentary there. So in verse 9, we see suddenly and instantaneously the angel of the Lord standing before them. Boom. Very possible it could have been that Gabriel, since he was already before Zacharias and Mary. Look at what happens here. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Mark that. In your Bibles, mark it. Mark that. Very important statement. Write that down in your notes. Very important statement. The glory of the Lord shone around them. It's, it's such a significant statement that we pass over it a lot of times. If you go back and study this term, it really simply means manifestation. God manifesting Himself. The manifestation of the presence of God in light. When the invisible God, He reveals Himself, He reveals Himself as light. Exodus 33, does it ring a bell? Adam and Eve walked in the garden with a glorious shining Shekinah or the manifestation of God. And 
We see the glory of God in Exodus 40 when the Israelites finished building the tabernacle. The same thing happened when the temple was built. But then, then in Ezekiel 8 through 10, Old Testament scholars, you understand what happened. Glory of the Lord, it. God turns, his, turns away from, Israel turns away from God, the glory of the Lord departs. And it went away from the temple. The prophet stands and he watched the glory go up over the temple and go up over the door and up over the mountain and it's gone. The glory of the Lord's gone. Israel's lost it. And the glory never came back until this night. Signifying that the presence of God had come into the world not in a building, not in a garden, not in a tent. This time he'd come back in human flesh in the Messiah. Praise the Lord. And the normal reaction when confronted with the glory of God is terrified. That's what you see. They're terrified. And the angel says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because he's not coming in judgment. The angel doesn't come in judgment. He comes in grace. He's coming to give grace. We've seen that with Mephibosheth and David. David, he comes and he lays down before David and prostrate. And David says, don't be afraid. I have grace to give you. And the angel says, the... it's when God doesn't come for grace that we should be afraid, by the way when God doesn't come for grace that we should be afraid. And the angel says the good news is for all the people. The angels don't say this is good advice. They don't say that. No, no, good news is not good advice. God, He doesn't give good advice here. He gives good news here. And the, the news is not about a system. It's not about a program. It's not about a way of life. It's about a person. The good news is not about how to make your life better. It's about how to be saved from the wrath of God to come. The good news is there's a proclamation of salvation that it reaches to everybody and anybody, first the Jew, then the Gentile. The good news is the person of that salvation is none other than an anointed king of priest and prophet of God who is none other than God Himself. Verse 12 takes us to the next statement by the angel. The angel says to them, This will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Sign not necessarily being wrapped in clothes. Every baby would have been wrapped in clothes. But what happens? What's the difference? The baby was lying in a manger. In a manger. That's how they knew. Verse 13 and 14. It gets us to the pinnacle here. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is well pleased. The pinnacle here being that what occurred was the glory of God. Understand this. The highest thing that can occur in the created universe is, the, is that God is glorified by His creatures. The highest thing that can concur in the universe is that God is glorified by His creatures. And that's what we see the angels doing here. This is the purpose of the good news. But you say, Blake, I thought the purpose of the good news was to save us from our sins. It is. But actually the good news is to save sinners so that we can join the angels and give them glory to God. That's why we're saved. So we give God all the glory. The glory of God has always been the highest peak. Always. What we come here to with the angels praising God is the greatest worship service of all time. If you think us praise group can really get up here and sing, man, you don't have nothing compared to the angels. But they were praising God. They really weren't singing. They were praising Him. 
We find that in Isaiah. Probably some of the greatest, two of the other greatest pictures that we see in Scripture is in Isaiah and Revelation. Praising God for the birth of the sinless Savior. Thanking God for His indescribable gift. And at the end of verse 14, they give this statement, And on earth, peace among men with whom He is well pleased. I'm going to come back to that statement here at the end. Last thing I want to point to and wrap it up here to the text is a pursuit for the divine reality. A pursuit for the divine reality. As we come off this great divine scene of all of heaven breaking loose, the shepherds, they've come to know that this is beyond anything imaginable. What a scene! I would say there isn't, but we don't see it all in other Scripture. We don't see it like this. The question that is upon us is, is how do they respond to this announcement? What was their response? It's something to get an announcement. It's something to go through something like that and then just, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It's very simple from this point on, I believe, in the text. And what I want to look at from here on is how this narrative serves as a, as a good illustration of how people respond savingly to the gospel. It's just a good illustration. You see, after the angels left, these frightened shepherds, the shepherds were in full agreement. They wanted to get on their way immediately. So they say in verse 15, let's go straight to Bethlehem and then we can see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So when they, when they find someone that take care of their sheep, remember they had, to, they had to take care of some things, orderly things there. And then the word thing in the Greek means word or reality. Let's go straight to Bethlehem then we can see this reality. We can see this word they want to go see the reality. What's happening is, is that they, they now understand that they've heard the word from, the God, from God. They've heard this word and that there's a reality. And the reality is, is the Savior's been born. They trusted in the reality that the angel told them. They trusted in it. That's very important. So it was in full pursuit from there on. And if you want to alliterate it even more, they had a purpose if you, to go. So the first thing we see is that they believed. They had a revelation from God. Can't get no more than the revelation of that, the Word of God coming to them. And what did they do? They could have easily not believed. They could have not easily trusted that and say, you're, you're crazy. But what did they do? They believed it. Divine revelation is where anybody's faith in Christ begins. Anybody's salvation begins with a message from God. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. That's what these shepherds did. They heard a word about Christ from a multitude of angels, proclaimers of a divine word sent by God. It's of dire importance that we understand today, folks. No one is getting saved outside the word of God. You can doll it up all you want to. You can, you can have all these theatrical things. You can exposit movies. You can do everything you want to do. But if you're not reading the Word of God, if you're not proclaiming the Word of God, if you're not witnessing with the Word of God, no one will be saved. The revelation has to come first. Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. Paul says, how should they hear if there's not a preacher? We're called to be preachers, by the way. So the shepherds, they heard the message and they believe it. The Spirit of God obviously having prepared their hearts for this. Their, their faith in the Word of God then caused them to pursue Christ. And you see, that's the third step of anybody's life coming to Christ. First, you know the revelation. Second, you believe it. Third, you come to Christ. Look what the shepherds did. They said The Scripture says they, they came in a hurry. They came in a hurry. 
Now understand, it's not the intent of the passage to teach some spiritual truth, but what this is, is is a wonderful illustration of a spiritual truth. Okay, I want you to understand that. They they came in a hurry is what it says. They were so excited about seeing the Messiah. They they knew that this was something special, possibly because they, they were saved Jews, possibly. They were waiting on Christ themselves. Now here He is, and they're going to be the first to see Him. What a privilege it is to see Him. So they were in pursuit of this divine reality. And they come into Bethlehem, no doubt, knocking on doors, right? Have you, have you heard of a baby crying? Have you heard of a baby crying? Have you, have you seen that? What do they do? Then finally, what do they do? They come and they found their... Verse 16 says, They found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger, just as the angels had told him. And what a glorious sight it must have been. Now what followed after that is normal as a, is also normal as an illustration of behavior of someone who comes to Christ. Someone who has pursued Christ. It's, it's witnessing. What do they do? Someone who's heard the truth of the gospel, someone who has believed that someone has come, has found Christ, and then he witnesses. Verse 17, And when they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told about this child. They went everywhere and said, The Savior's been born. The Savior's been born. The Messiah is here. They told the story. The most faithful, aggressive people in proclaiming the gospel are the newest Christians. The joy, excitement, enthusiasm overflows them and they can't wait to tell people about their transformation. Can they not? I know, remember when I came to the Lord, man, I could not wait to tell what had happened in my life. Still can't wait to tell what happened in my life. What we see here is the first evangelicals or the first evangelists in the New Testament. That's it. They're proclaiming the Word of God is what we see. We see the joy radiating from these believers and that's what happens. If you don't have a joy in your life and you're a new Christian... I don't know what to say. They need to think about that. There should be joy in their life. They had to tell people the good news, did they not? You can say that, you can say that you're committed all you want to. You can say that you talk about the commitment to Jesus Christ, but until you actually eagerly share the joy that you have experienced in your life, then your commitment is just at face value. The shepherds, they told this news far and wide. And in verse 18 it says, All who had heard it wondered the things which were told by them by the shepherds. What they are telling, it created a stir. People, they were marveled at it. They were amazed at it. But that's all they did. You see that? That's all they did. They, they, just, they just wondered, huh, Christ, wow. They heard, but then what did they do? They went on about their business. Unlike the shepherds who once they heard what they do, they ran to the manger. These people heard and they just, "Ah, that's great, good news, good deal, all right. But people are like that today, aren't they? People are like that today. They they, they hear the interesting news of Jesus. They they may even give lip service to it. Say, yeah, yeah, I got you, Uh I know Jesus. But yet, they continue on with their sinful lives. They do that. How do you, I don't know. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've heard the news of Christ. You've sat here all your life. You've heard the news of Christ. Maybe you've never sat here before. Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard the news of Christ. But they have a sense of wonder and amazement with about Him. But that's it. You've, you've never ran to Christ. You've never thrown yourself at the foot of Jesus today or ever. Maybe it's because you love your sin more than you love God. 
You, you don't want to be held accountable to God. You say, I love this sin. I want to hang on to this sin. You say, that's not a mark of a Christian. Maybe it's your lying. Maybe it's your cheating on your wife. Maybe you don't want to do those things. You don't want to stop those things. Maybe it's alcohol or maybe it's some other kind of drug that you're holding on to that you're putting before Christ. Look at verse 19. It's, it's interesting. It takes us to the heart of Mary. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in heart. Can you imagine what the pondering would have been? She's holding the little baby, right? She's pondering upon these truths. The Son of God, right? Knowing He's going to be crucified one day. Knowing this child is going to die one day. But she's pondering upon it. And that's like our lives as well as Christians, right? When we come to the Lord, what do we do? Man, we ponder upon these things. We think about these things. If the Lord is not running through your veins or through your brain each and every day, we need to be pondering upon these things, Christians. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen, which were just as they had been told. We... We see the shepherds here returning back to their occupation, don't we? But, but they, they went back with a different attitude. They, they went back, what? Glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen. And just as it would have been told to them, what an amazing picture of our lives as Christians, right? When you become a Christian and you have the greatest imaginable transformation and you heard the revelation from God, you believed it and you embraced Christ and you begun to witness when all this has happened, you begin to think deeply and profoundly of the realities of God, who Christ is and what were the saving purposes of God is unfolding in the world. When you begin to ponder about this, when you've come to that point and you still have to go back to work, life goes on, doesn't it? When we leave today, life goes on. But your whole attitude has changed because you have encountered the greatest revelation of God, and that's Jesus Christ. That is our attitudes as Christians, right? Or at least it should be. We should be glorifying. We should be praising God for what He has done. Our lives, they should be filled with praise to Him. And the more you know, the deeper you ponder, the deeper you dive into His Word about those salvation truths, the greater you sing. How great is our God? In Christ alone, I will wait for you. Hark the herald angels sing. One final verse today in this verse 21. It says, When eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, if you know anything about Jewish law, the Scripture is very clear that a baby born on the eighth day was to be what? Circumcised, right? And by the time in history, the official naming of the child occurred on the eighth day as well. So Scripture says that they came together on the eighth day and they named Him Jesus. Why? Because it's what the name given by the angel said to do. It's what it said. This just illustrates one other thing of the Christian life. And that's obedience. It's obedience. Faith and obedience. Obedience is such an integral part of the Christian faith. In fact, without obedience, can we even say that we're really Christians? Can we really say we have faith? They're, they're the different sides of the same coin. They go together. If you have faith in something, you obey something. No fruit, no root. If you're, if you're in Christ today, then this is the pattern probably looks similarly familiar to you. Eerily familiar. We've heard the revelation of the gospel. We believed it. We then pursued Christ and embraced Him. We then became witnesses to the glorious transformation in our lives and we began to tell others about it. Then we became students of the Word and hopefully you've come to love the truth, love the Word, ponder upon the Word, 
And we're also, you know what we're characterized by? We're not characterized by gloom. We're not characterized by doom. We're not characterized by woe is me. We're characterized by exuberant, glorious praise and honor and glorifying the Lord God Almighty. That's our lives as Christians. Yeah, we're going to go through valleys. We'll have those. But how do we come out from them? Expressed in our worship, singular and corporate as well. And finally, our lives are marked by a desire to obey what God has told us to do. I'll close with this. We saw earlier in our text today that when the presence of the Lord came upon the shepherds, that they were afraid. I'll tell you this. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior personally, then you better fear God. In fact, you better be terrified of God. For you are currently under the wrath of God, as Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, and you are on the very brink of eternal wrath, held above heaven, hell, by a tiny string. The Scripture says that a Savior came, verse 11, you may say, well, why do I need a Savior? A Savior for what? Well, I'm doing just fine on my own. Doing good. What do I need a Savior for? That's a fair question. The word Savior implies that we need to be saved from something. Saved is a synonym for rescue, delivered. And it implies that there's some kind of threatening condition. There's some kind of dangerous condition, some kind of desperate condition that we need to be rescued from. You say, Blake, I'm good. Living living in America, man, I'm happy. I got money. I'm, I'm, I'm joyful, man. I'm good. It's not cert- it certainly ain't from your unfulfilled life or from your bad marriage or for your job, what you're being saved from. It's certainly not frustration, some bad habits, or a cross-filled hole in your life. The universal problem from which God sent a Savior to deliver us is the problem of our sin and our guilt. That's the issue today. It's to rescue us from the consequence of our sin. Everyone, everyone today falls in that category today. You have broken the law of God and you're only on your way to eternal hell and you need to be rescued from sin. You need to be rescued from God Himself for He's the one that's going to deliver the divine punishment. He's going to be the one to deliver the judgment. That's why you should fear God if you're an unbeliever. If you're actually, you're actually an enemy of God, is what Scripture says. And God will unleash it, His wrath. That is why Christ was sent 2,000 years ago. That's why we need a Savior. If you find yourself in that position today, I exhort you to repent and place your trust in Him. I exhort you to. God commands it in His Scripture. Repentance. It's a turning away from your sins. It's not just a resolve to do better. It's not a, it, it's a, it isn't just a change of mind, but it's a change of heart. It's a turning. You come to a brokenness. You come to a realization. You've heard a revelation. You come to a realization that I've sinned against the God. And it's a turning to the Savior. Why? Why to the Savior? Why? Why do we turn to Christ? Because it's by His life and death that we're saved. Repentance turns from the love of sin to Christ and faith embraces Him as the only hope of salvation and righteousness. That is why conversion 
means. That's what conversion means in simple terms. You've been converted. You've gone from a love of sin to a love of Christ. In verse 14 of this chapter, we see the angels singing and praising God, and they make this statement, peace on earth, peace on earth. We can easily pass over that statement. But what kind of peace? What kind of peace? It's a salvation peace. The war is over when you become a Christian. The battle is finished. No longer is God your enemy. And when we, His enemy, we've become reconciled to Him. Peace is here, as Romans says. Romans 5.1 says that we now have peace with God. And Paul says in Ephesians that Jesus Himself is our peace. Christ has restored the broken relationship between you and God. That's what He does. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Not for gifts, not for singing hymns, not for doing all those things, but we need a Savior. You see, Jesus Christ is still the only foundation upon which real fearlessness can be built. You ought to fear the invisible. You ought to fear the supernatural God, the unknown, unless, unless you know Christ. Right? And then your fear, it turns to joy. We sing to Him. Verse 10 says, great joy. And since we've been made righteous and we now have peace with God, We've been called as Christians, those who have have trusted Him to be people of peace, meaning we are to bring the message of reconciliation to the world. The message that takes what is broken and restores it to God and to holiness. May may we as Christians today, as, as as application today, may we be peacemakers. May we bring the, the reconciliation message of peace this Christmas season. Helping people to restore their broken relationship with God. Last thing and I'm done. Last thing. We talked about hope a little earlier, did we not? Remember, Christian hope is when God has promised that something is going to happen and you put your trust in that promise. We've seen that in our story today, have we not? Promised and it's come true. So how do we build our hope in God? As Christians today, how do we build our hope in God? The Bible says, well, hope is a portion of our, or a part of our faith. Faith and hope, they overlap. They're realities. Hope and faith in the, hope is actually faith in the future tense. It's, so most of faith is actually hope. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for that, or I'm, I'm not wishful thinking, but I'm striving for that. I'm looking toward that hope. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And that implies that hope, like faith, is also strengthened by the Word of God. Hope comes from reading His precious and very great promises and looking to Christ who purchased them. If you feel hopeless today, you need to read the Word of God. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us, how will He not also with Him graciously give all things? That last part of that Scripture is hope producing. It produces hope in our lives, does it not? But it's grounded in the rock-solid first part of that statement that God didn't spare His own Son. So the essence of what we look to in the Bible to build our hope is what Christ has done for me in my sinful condition that enables me to know that I will not come into judgment and condemnation and that all things are working together. That's where our hope lies. It's rock solid. It's, it's, hope is not, not founded in a wishful thinking, but it's founded in the Word of God, which is, I hope I've proved that today is it's rock solid. And the answer is that Christ died for me. The answer is that He rose again for me, and therefore all the promises of God are yes in Him. That's our hope. So, as Christians today, what we do is we look away from the circumstances that confront us, look to Christ, look to the promises that He's promised, and hold fast to them that are in the Bible. 
You see, hope comes from the promises of God rooted in the work of Christ. And if you're a non-believer today, if you've never trusted in the Lord as your personal Lord and Savior, there's hope. For hope has arrived. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.